You're listening to the Friends Talking Nerdy Podcast Network. Friends Talking Nerdy! If your friends are nerdy and you are nerdy too, I want to talk to you. There we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Friends Talking Nerdy. This is Tim Jowsma. And joining me all the way in Portland, Maine, we have the very sick, the COVID, the COVID queen, the Reverend Tracy. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm actually, I'm not too sick anymore. And I'll, I'll more explain that like in a second, I guess. But I did. I got the, the vid. It happened. Um, and I'm not even going to try to speculate where I got it at this point because cases have been kind of going up everywhere at this point. And really at this point, you know, if you come into contact with people, you're going to come into some statistical likelihood of running into it at this point. You know, there's, it's not news that we're kind of like waiting on this next booster period because typically every six months or so when something's active, you want to kind of give your immune system a boost. Mm -hmm. So I think the universe just went and done did that for me. Uh, but I got it. It was kind of uh, funny because I have started listening to our shows, you know, because I figured that's actually how you get better at things is listening. <laughs> you know, you don't normally just like crochet a blanket and never look at it right like you should kind of you know listen and it was kind be of interesting funny. results though <laughs> right but it was kind of funny because i was hearing like oh that frog in my throat i'm like well i guess there may have been some clues but it's also hard to tell because all of the trees are in blossom so it's it's a seasonal allergy season as well um but yes, I got it. I, I still think it was super worth it to get the vaccines, judging just by this experience of having to go through it. Um, first of all, I do have asthma. So that was one of the reasons I super tried not to get it at first, because it seemed to be really complicated. Uh, the pneumonia lung symptoms are already really hard, like just a regular chest cold can be hard on somebody with asthma. Um, so for me, my experience is when I get any kind of cold or anything, I'm going to have an asthmatic cough for like a week or two after it's gone. <laughs> so I will say that is what I am still experiencing. But it was cool because in the sense of like while I was going through the worst of it, like the fever and the little bit of body aches that I did have, like the asthma felt more like I was just going like I'd gone on a jog and seasonal pollen was bad like it was interesting to not have the effects on my asthma as bad as i feel like it is for a normal cold mm -hmm. now i'm one of those humans i've gotten the flu shot you know in years i've also not gotten the flu shot in years and so far like comparing it it just seems worth it to get the vaccines um and that means i have gotten the flu on a year where i had no vaccine i've gotten the flu on years that i have had the vaccine and seen the difference in like what that does to my body so there's something to be said about having like the jump start on it so if you're on the edge about that still and kind of want to consider things like if you have an attitude of I'm going to get it anyway, it could soften the blow on getting it. So just something to consider if you haven't. It's not too late. You can still go get vaccines and boosters right now. They're still free. Um, don't be like my oldest son. Uh, he's 21. Uh, when COVID first hit, um, he um, 
he's not the type of person that was like against vaccines. He never was, but he was just like, I'll get it later. I'll get the vaccine later. And, um, well, he got the COVID first <laughs> and, um, without <laughs> any, any bit of the vaccine and, um, it hit him pretty hard. Thankfully, um, he was able to recover, um, went from like 260 down to 220. So like lost a lot of weight really fast, but, um, yeah, like he, you know, I was dopey when I was 21, you know, he's, he's lived to tell the tale and, you know, I, I, I would hope cross fingers you know, that, um, he, he will, uh, I, I believe he's gotten the vaccine at this point too, but this is not something you want to mess around with. Like, um, people that would comment, you know, like to you, like, are, are you glad you got the vaccine? Now? The vaccine is there to lessen the damage. I mean, the, the COVID is going to be around just like the flu is still around. You get the flu shot to kind of eliminate alleviate uh the symptoms if you do happen to get it it's not this it's not like a star trek uh shield around a ship or something like that that's going to block everything oh yeah everything is really about statistical probabilities anyway so really all you're ever doing when you get a vaccine is you're making the stats a little bit more in your favor that you're not going to get like knocked down sick by this like unexpectedly it's kind of the same as like you know wearing a seatbelt doesn't guarantee you're not going to have an accident that's like life ending or something that like could really really like disfigure something over time right it uh-huh. just makes it more likely that you will survive an accident, but it doesn't ensure it. So kind of the same thing. Um, so you can stack things, for example, right? Like if you know it's cold and flu season, I'm oh, that's right. It's like, I'm kind of okay with wearing masks like in public, especially like if I'm the one that's kind of snotty. I, I, I think I can just get on the team of keeping my germs to myself, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm not going to sit there and glare at other people who choose not to, but that's where I'm at at this point. So at least with the current CDC stuff, you know, I can now go out in public. I just need to be masked the whole time. You know, curbside pickup is still a thing. It is kind of funny. Everybody in the house wound up getting it this time, including the cat. Uh, and I do say like I didn't swab being or anything, but I do say with some certainty that she got it because what are the odds as a 100% indoor cat that she would get a cold from anywhere else? And she definitely had cold symptoms. She gave me a bit of a scare because, you know, she's older. So older cats, once they hit that bonier stage of being a senior cat, they can't really afford to not eat for a few days. And that is exactly what a cat with a cold does. So if you do Give COVID to your cat. Here is a tip. If you really need to get them to eat, they need to be able to smell it. And that's the problem that she was having. Chicken is not a strong smell. That was the food that I had down. So I just like literally told Walgreens to please let me buy some canned tuna through their drive-thru. And they were totally awesome about it. They let me do it and it got beans to eating. So, and actually it sounds like, or it looks like she's down here and wants to say hi to Tim. I know you Uh guys can't see her, but she's doing just fine now. But the whole house is on the mend. Um, So just a little quick side tip. If you accidentally give your cat COVID and they're not eating canned tuna, you know, get their appetite back and then they should be good to go. Nice. Nice. Now me, I have not had quite as active a week as you, um, but I'm currently back home right now. Um, the, the, the house sitting gig was not one continuous thing. So there'll be weeks that I'll spend there and then weeks I'll, I'll be back home, but I'm definitely missing the chickens. Um, <laughs> I, I really, really loved making the little, uh, baby chickens, especially the gray one, uh, just happy. Like it, it was to the point, like my last couple days there, anytime I would walk by the cage, 
uh, the gray chicken would just like start running back and forth in the cage, like pick me up, pick me up, pick me up. <laughs> and um, um, I posted a couple of videos on uh, Facebook of uh, you know like just having the bird on on my hand and like looking at my iPad um, at 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 its uh, own picture on the. <laughs> Uh, which was funny and I learned what chicken scratch is I got I don't know if you can see it but I got like scratches all over my arm from how excited the chicken was like uh, right here was uh, yesterday and that was I had the cage open and then the chicken was just like oh my god oh my god oh my god and literally was just just trying to get up on my arm as quickly as possible but <laughs> scraping uh, the entire time it was like calm down calm down but um, yeah that was really really fun and um yeah just i'm still going to eat chicken but i wouldn't be able to like like i said if i was a farmer i, I wouldn't kill a chicken they'd be my pets and i'd, I'd eat the corn feed with them because <laughs> you know? like you know that i it may get made me so happy just making that little creature happy i mean the the, the chicken's probably forgotten me by now but <laughs> for that little brief moment i made that creature super happy and that's an awesome thing well, and may not have, right? Because we traditionally underestimate the intellect of animals. Look at the goldfish brain concept. People still really honestly think goldfish have like a three-second attention span or whatever. And it's been proven time and time again that they can learn mazes mm-hmm. and, you know, do the maze faster the like 48 hours later or whatever, which means, you know, they, they remembered. They remembered some part of it. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, that reminds me, too. There was this video I saw of this chimpanzee that was in the hospital and uh, really sick and was not eating. So what they did, they actually found um, like one of the scientists that originally knew this chimpanzee when it was a young, a young chimp brought this person in. And then the chimpanzee recognized the person and had such a big smile and ultimately started eating a little bit again. Now, sadly, unfortunately, the chimp was at such an advanced age that it was just you know a short little uh, blip before it ultimately passed on but they do remember mm-hmm. i love animals like I, I don't know i was raised around them so mm-hmm. i just feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding with animals sometimes and maybe we don't give them enough credit yeah i mean they they can definitely provide us with food with clothes and all, all that stuff too but they're also living creatures and you know, that's like, uh, that's like a meat eater. How do you, how do you reconcile that? You know, um, with, you know, which I, I know with you, you're like eat vegan. <laughs> well, I mean, and not even, I, I still eat meat, especially like, you know, things that are offered to me. I have a very Buddhist mentality when it comes to that. If somebody has made something and wants me to try it, wants to offer it to me, I don't know. Like I'm fine with that. Mine's a lot more on the health side of it. And I would rather eat meat that's, like, taken care of, doesn't have, like, higher than necessary hormones or antibiotics, if it can be helped. And then, of course, cortisol levels is something I personally care about. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's just something that you're going to get more on a small farm, more expensive meat. So really just, I don't know, I, I just, I try not to eat it often. But even when I was on the farm, though, like, we had those pets that we named right like so i showed chickens but we also had the chicken barn so you do have a different relationship with the animals that you kind of groom more as a pet like your show hen than mm-hmm. the ones that end up on 
the dinner table. You know, those don't normally get named if you if you catch what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but it was never like a cruel thing, though. You know, they just kind of they live their life. We took care of them. Um, it, it's not like the overcrowding situation like you see in any of the PETA sponsored movies out there. And there's some actually pretty pretty gross stuff that we do on the commercial side of it. So that that's why I try to stay away from it. I just maybe there's a little bit of uh, some might call it like the hippie crunchy mentality of like I don't want to eat like their their poisoned souls or whatever. But I, I just kind of think maybe it's not that great for you to eat meat from an animal that's been like really stressed out because there are a lot of cultures that do believe you shouldn't eat meat if an animal has been stressed out like that, like a lot of like the way that kosher is dealt with is keeping in mind for like the animal to not be under a lot of stress, like while it's dying. So I I don't know, like normally those things didn't get passed down for nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, The whole concept of like eating things, not eating things, like even if you look like in the Bible stuff, I know we're totally like getting on a side note on this one, but anywho, that being said, I, I eat or don't eat meat for various reasons, but there there's a separation normally if you're raising animals, like based on what you're raising them for. And it doesn't sound like you guys have like a chicken barn that, no. you know, it's it's like kind of meant to to be a little bit of a meat source locally. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, the yeah, I mean, take chickens, for instance, uh, like what they do to be able to get like the thick meat on there is that, you know, they they inject these chickens with so much hormones that, you know, they they a lot of times can't walk. And they have so many in such a confined area that, you know, like, like imagine you as a human having to be, you know, elbow to elbow with other human beings all the time, how you would be extremely stressed out and you expect an animal with a much smaller limited intellect to be able to not be stressed out by that. That's ridiculous. And how does, and, and to your point too, yeah, if a stressed out animal, like the, the body has probably producing some, uh, you know, hormones or something that aren't probably healthy for the animal or for us eating it so you know finding more healthy meat is it is how you would ultimately respect an animal if you have the money to do it now if you're you know someone in my tax bracket you know you don't always have that luxury to buy you know go to the farmer's market every single week and buy you know fresh chicken or something like that so i'm not if you can't you know do it and the only option you have is the stuff you buy at walmart i'm not you know i'm not gonna shun you but it's like you, you know it's if you have the ability just it's healthier all I'm hearing is you're helping raise some very delicious chickens <laughs> that, that will never be eaten, like it sounds like, because you know they're more pet and egg chickens <laughs> or something. Yeah, I, but it'll it'll be fun at the end of the day to uh, see the little great one again. Yep, a, a healthy chicken is a delicious chicken, but you don't have to eat things just because they're delicious. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she said. Anyway, <laughs> well. We're going to go on here with our topic for the day. Um, Being that this is Mental Health Awareness Month, we wanted to do a little deep dive into something uh, that really affects us all. Uh, Reverend, let us know what this is. Yeah, and I mean, we kind of touched on it a little bit last week, which is why I think I wanted to go into it this week because it kind of made sense. And then I did actually want to take one brief little second for anybody that listened to the suicide episode. I wanted to put out there that I made a totally incorrect statement. I was very obviously like feeling my jadedness against our law system. We do not have any states currently that would prosecute you as an attempted homicide. That apparently is like 
been gotten rid of since decades and decades ago. So, hey, you know what? We did take some steps forward there. We haven't <laughs> regressed backwards in that sense. So I did want to take a second and correct that because I feel like I was totally just venting some steam and speaking very factual. So, but um, that, I, I but I I personally thought that that was the case oh, in yeah. some areas too. So <laughs> and and that does remind me I should apologize for assuming certain areas of the country uh, still had had this on the books. So to the south. I apologize. <laughs> yes. I mean, even though I don't think you said that, but thanks for being honest that that's what you were thinking about. But I, so I did want to take a second to, to just go ahead and put that out there as a correction. But mm. we also did kind of touch on our struggles with getting in to get help. And a lot of that is tied into our mental health, you know, not being necessarily the easiest thing to access because healthcare in general can be a struggle to access. So as it is related to our system, we wanted to talk about what are the pros and cons out there of having a universal healthcare system. And I did want to say that is different than socialized medicine. Um, socialized is a little bit more your hospitals are all state government ran, all doctors are state government employees. We don't have anything that strict. The closest thing we have that kind of operates that way is, you know, the veterans hospital. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, that's uh, it is kind of interesting because in reading all of this, I kind of learned like in America, we do have a little bit of everything in that sense. We have a little bit of the socialized. We have a little bit of universal health in the sense of like Medicare and Medicaid, which we'll get into. And then we do have like the privatized kind of section of it. And that's kind of across the board because we've got the private doctors and then we also have private health care. Mm-hmm. Um, so just saying that a lot of the stuff I'm talking about today is about universal health care, not about socialized medicine, kind of different. Um, whereas it's, I almost feel like socialized or the universal health care is more of the middle of it, if that makes sense. Like it's not quite socialized. It's not quite private. It actually kind of seems to be a little bit of the middle, which is where I'm excited to talk about it because I'm a big middle path nut. I think I say that term enough here to, to for that to be associated with me. So, But first, I want to talk about um, what struggles have you had or really how how do you feel like your experience of getting help either for physical or mental in America. We've been here our whole lives. Let's talk about that for a second. Uh, well, luckily for me, um, health-wise, I've not really had any particular reason to go to the doctor often myself. Um, you know, I mean, of course, I did mention the whole vasectomy journey on the show here, but um, um, my big experience with uh, healthcare is more seeing family members, like uh, my mother. Um, she had a non-cancerous brain tumor issue called meningioma uh, that didn't go away, and she ultimately ended up having 10 brain surgeries. And funny enough, uh, her brain surgeon was the father of the man who wrote the movie American Pie. And um, if you remember that movie with the pie fucker, his father played um, by the guy from Schitt's Creek. I forgot his name. Eugene Um, Levy. Eugene Levy. Yeah. His character (laughs) is the brain surgeon. (laughs) His character was inspired by my mom's brain surgeon. 
Oh, that's really funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the guy was a bit of a dick, but, you know, that's a different story for a different day. But the um, reason I bring that up is this. When she first got it, she, her initial doctor was just somebody at a local clinic. And initially when she had it, um, when she was first diagnosed, the doctor still kept her there and just it, it 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 didn't make sense for her to be at a at the type of clinic she was at for the seriousness of her problem um ultimately uh when i met my ex-wife my ex-wife was able to knew about the whole uh, medical system because uh you know she grew up disabled but also had family in the health system so knew how to make those calls but the fact that you have to have somebody that knows how to make those calls I find that wrong. I find that just morally, morally wrong, you know, um, especially when you have someone with a brain tumor and you have a doctor just treating it like, you know, she came in for like a twisted knee or something like that, you know, and it would. It, uh, so uh, call me jaded uh, from pretty early on, you know, just I've not had good experiences with uh, the medical system just because I've seen when you don't have much money, you don't get treated good at all. Yeah, or at all. Uh, <laughs> one situation that I thought was interesting. So, you know, I whenever I was under my parents' insurance, it was really just a nothing thing, right? Like I went, I would see a doctor and, you know, there's really like a copay or whatever and that would all, I'd, I'd figure that out, right? And um, whenever I became an adult, though, it was kind of interesting because, you know, pre-Obama presidency, many people just didn't have health insurance. It wasn't even a big deal. Like it was kind of normal for people to be uninsured. And I remember being that uninsured person and even doing something as simple as trying to get a well woman exam was such hoops to jump through. It was so stupid because it's like, I didn't have a lot of money. I just needed to know, Hey, what did I know? I know about once a year I'm supposed to go put my feet in these stirrups, have this awkward conversation where somebody's always going to tell me I need to scoot closer to them. And then they're going to tell me whether or not I have ovarian cancer or like HPV or fucking whatever, right? Because yep. they just, they just, you know, it's, it's the well woman exam. And so I know that I need this. I'm responsible enough at this point in my life that I go, okay, well, they're going to need money units and I don't have insurance. So I need to know how many money units they're going to need when I go into this doctor's office because I need to put aside that money. Mm -hmm. And I just remember spending like, I felt like it was a week going back and forth. Like, no, you don't understand. I just need to know how much it is. Well, it depends on what we do. I was like, what's the standard well woman whoop-de-doo like what is that what's what's the most it could be i remember getting really frustrated at one point and just being like yeah fine what's the most it could be then mm -hmm. and it literally took my mother calling because she was you know already a patient there and she was like just just see my daughter i'll make sure it gets paid just see her but see like that shouldn't have taken all that i don't think like it just seemed so crazy that i couldn't get over the phone, how much money can I save up to make sure I've got it in the two or three months that I have before I come see you? And you couldn't even get that answer. So, and I don't know if that's gotten better because that was a long time ago. Again, this is pre-Obama presidency. So that was just something that always stuck with me as being one of the more bizarre roadblocks of like seriously telling me you're not going to see me because I don't have insurance and I can't just say basically, yes, I can afford this. I'm trying to tell you, like, I need to know how much it is so that I can afford it by then. 
Yeah, I mean, being I, I used to work in computer repair, and and part of me understands that logic. You don't want to say, "Oh, it's going to be twenty dollars," and then you find out that additional tests have to be done, and the price is going to be doubled. But there, you know, it, what what this shows more than anything is that it's 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 the insurance companies because you have a lot of times to where, um, you know, like things will be charged. What I found that they do is like they will the the numbers that the hospital gives you is normally the highest that they they can charge, and normally the insurance companies will barter that. But what what the, the average citizen doesn't realize is that you can barter that. So a lot of times you're getting the top of the line bill when it really doesn't cost that much so i mean there's a lot of things that that unfortunately you know it's they, sh- they should have they, sh- they should have a list to say it's going to cost you this unless you know something else you know i mean and and yeah. i'm sure if they had given you a base price with the with the disclaimer that it could potentially be more uh, that that's at least some information right Right. And it's like, in my head, I was so confused. It's like, okay, because I'm telling you, I don't feel like there's anything wrong with me. So wouldn't we know if they would need more tests, like, after you get the results of the first test I'm asking you to do first? Like, anywho. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it's still like that. It was just one of those things that always stuck in my head as being really odd. And yeah, and I've, I've worked in medical billing, so super aware of kind of the influence insurance seems to have on pricing um, in the sense of, you know, if you go into an urgent care and you don't have insurance, they do at least try to provide a discount now if you are uninsured to try to help give you some of that benefit. And it's mostly just seems to be that they're asking for as much as they can. That way, if the insurance doesn't give it to them, that they still maybe get enough to cover what it costs for like the doctor and the surprise used and stuff like that. So it's super complicated. This show is not necessarily about how insurance works. This is more about the pros and cons though, of what if it was just that we had a, a universal healthcare, that single payer system where we could just possibly, you know, back in the day of our struggles, never have to have those conversations because you would just go and see somebody and then it's covered, you know, by the single payer system that you are in with the state. Um, And I do remember kind of always hearing that, you know, things were so bad, like in Canada or like all of these examples of how it was like, you know, horrible and something that you wouldn't want anyway. Right. Because that was like a lot of the narrative for a long time is like, you know, you get what you pay for and and you shouldn't want like free medical care or whatever. Um, so that's kind of some of the early memories of our system versus theirs. And then I do think it's funny and I'll get into it a little bit more later, too, I'm sure. But. For me, the first things that kind of cracked open that maybe the way we do things in the United States isn't the best was with the Internet. You know, you get out there and you start having conversations with people from like Canada. Like, oh, my God, you're from Canada. I hear it's impossible to see a doctor there. Because, you know, those are the things you talked about, like in high mm-hmm. school when you were <laughs> on the Internet. But because, um, yeah, you, you do. You end up kind of talking about like what you've heard about in places uh, as you kind of suddenly got access to people because that's what's kind of interesting about our age groups is we kind of were raised in a sense where we learned about other cultures but didn't really have the opportunity to interact with them and learn from them directly and then suddenly that was opened up 
Oh, so yeah. Kind of, yeah. Did you ever like have those conversations and kind of like, hey, is, I, I totally was the dumb American um, those times, right? Because it's like, oh, well, I hear your wait times are terrible and I hear like blah, blah, blah. And then they're just like, actually, no. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I don't recall having any sort of specific conversations about like medical systems in other countries. I mean, I, I you know, more than like if I met someone from England, I, I would probably more ask them about TV that they watched than anything else. Like, do, do you still have the Doctor Who over there? Well, so do we. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's just because of Texas, right? I was raised in Texas, so it's a little bit more. Um, I, I did kind of notice like a lot more of the political conversations in town, even mm-hmm. as a kid, but we of course love those Britannica articles of the pros and cons. There are a lot out there of mm-hmm. arguments. So I did kind of stick to the top three. And then there's a few others that are going to kind of come up in another article that I found and just some side nerdy research that I did because I like to do that. So we can go ahead and go on to the top arguments and the interesting studies that I kind of stumble across in that way and the thought processes, unless you had anything else to add, like on the personal experience of the difficulties of getting medical help in America. Uh, no, I mean, I've, you know, talked about medical stuff on the show for a long time. I don't like doctors. I don't like going to the doctor myself unless I absolutely have to, you know, having said that, you know, with like the mental health stuff, I, I, you know, when I do go it, you know, I am, like I said, totally honest. That's how you get better, you know, but I still, like I told my kids, I remember one time there was a, a horse that was racing in the Kentucky Derby and then like broke its leg on the track. And then like, they just killed it immediately and I turned to my kids and I was like if that's me in my old age do that with me <laughs> you know like I don't want to be sick for a long time just take me out back put a slug in my head and you know just gone you know I because I because yeah I, I I wouldn't want to be in and out of the hospital like my mother was you know yeah was- well and it's also interesting because I think a lot of that the avoidance of doctors seems pretty normal in our culture And I do think a lot of that is because normally if you're going to a doctor, it's not like for your yearly physical for a checkup just to hear how you're doing. Mm -hmm. The way that we're set up is that you're going to a doctor if you have a problem, right? So you're either kind of expecting good news or that it could potentially be worse. And a lot of people tend to steer towards that it could potentially be worse like mentality. Um, And I think it's just because there is a lot of doom and gloom like kind of around – how those things can play out. Like we kind of are aware that medical debt contributes a lot towards things like bankruptcy, a lot towards things like people being unable to buy homes. Like the, the medical debt conversation is in the background of a lot of our stuff. And I think that's why we do have that hesitancy, right? Because going to a doctor means you are now statistically more at risk to be one of those people that accrues like a huge medical debt abruptly. And another thing people don't think of a medical debt as well is that, you know, when you have like Medicare or Medicaid, you can't make more than like X amount of dollars. I mean, it's different if you're single compared to if you're in a family, but if like 
you get a promotion at work and you get a raise, like a 50 cent raise that just still bumps you over that, that bit. If you have something serious, you better hope you have great, you know, insurance at work because you know, you're, you're going to, your support from Medicare and Medicaid is going to be cut off at the knees. And that's unfortunate too. And people on Medicare and Medicaid, you know, like can't start their own businesses can't you know really end up being productive and 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 you're like if you're on medicare medicaid or if you're disabled why can't you start your own business why would you want to start your own business we're talking about stuff like they they can't you know have a successful ebay business or something like that because if they make x amount of cash again there goes their support so so it's on the flip side too if you're poor you do have some safety nets with medicare and medicaid but you can't rise in life it's like you you have to stay poor in order to get that bad care exactly or you know and and we'll go on the quality of care in a little bit too because it's not really that you have medicaid doctors right because that would be more of a social system Mm -hmm. but the reality is is that not everybody has to accept Medicaid as an insurance in our system. So that does come into play in some of this. And so something else that I also want to throw out there is that cultural thing with doctors is also going to be a thing because I would almost want to look into, do they have the same doctor avoidance mentality in cultures that have universal health care? Because if your relationship with the doctor is more of that friendly check-in, just to hear how things are going, just to see how your diet and exercise, your body weight, your blood pressure, et cetera, like, does everybody have kind of that same hesitancy as we seem to have in America? And if, you know, you live in a system to where you don't have to worry about, you know, a $24,000 medical bill for a quick, you know, checkup or something like that, there's a lot of the stress out the window right there. Exactly. So that being said, I do want to go ahead and get into the actual kind of top arguments. We kind of, I, I kind of wanted just to put the feeler out there though, right? Because we're talking more about universal healthcare, not socialized medicine. And then there's also things that aren't really covered in some of these studies. Like I said, like that cultural opinion of doctors and whether or not to see them, what those relationships could affect, right? Because there's a lot to be said about preventative care, but if you don't go to the doctor for the preventative care, and if you're in a culture that doesn't encourage going to a doctor for preventative care, it's not going to do shit for, 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 for preventing bad things. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. So there is some of that to take into consideration as we kind of talk about some of these arguments. So the one of the top ones that comes up is, does the founding documents support the right to health care? Right? Because that's some of this, too, is some of us want to talk about what are our rights and what aren't. Um, it is kind of funny because this is basically people arguing over what is ultimately their interpretation of a document. Uh, and it's written so long ago that you can't really ask what they meant. <laughs> Sound familiar, Christians? was kind of like a little bit of a joke in my head, just saying. Um, it really boils down to how people choose to take the statement that all men have, quote, unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Folks who want it to be a statement that supports universal health care, then they are going to interpret it that way, right? On the anti-side, they will say basically that because a text does not state something specifically that it's not included. One delicious quote kind of sums up this attitude that I came across. 
Um, quote, the purpose of the U.S. Constitution, as stated in the preamble, is to, quote, promote the general welfare, not to provide it. The Bill of Rights lists a number of personal freedoms that the government cannot infringe upon, not material goods or services that the government must provide. According to por- former Congressman Ron Paul, quote, you have a right to your life and you have a right to your liberty and you have a right to keep what you earn in a free country you do not have the right to services or things and so if you wanted to understand the mentalities behind those arguments those are kind of the best ones i could find that sum it up right because essentially if you read something to say the pursuit of happiness and and having like access to life liberty and the pursuit of that happiness should include the ability to pursue that happiness by having good health, right? Like I, I kind of see like where this one is almost one of their those null pro cons because they kind of seem to cancel each other out a little bit. Well, it, 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 that Ron Paul quote was rather interesting because a lot of people do view healthcare as no different than you know shopping at Best Buy. You know, I mean, I remember when I was in church and, um, uh, you know, in my 20s and, you know, talking to somebody about, you know, the need of universal health care. You know, so in church, the the person immediately shot back, well, how are the doctors going to get paid and and walked away, which uh, to me, health care is is not best buy. It's 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 something that benefits everybody. Everybody should have access to it. You shouldn't have to die from cancer because you don't have the money to take care of it. And two, in my opinion, if a healthier society is a more productive society, you got more people able to, able to go out and pay taxes if they are healthy. It makes more sense for a country to want to have their citizens be as healthy as they can be. Right. And then what's interesting is, is, you know, there's this, well, the originating doctrine doesn't say it, but it does seem that the United States and other countries have signed things since then that promotes this idea that medical care should be something that we consider some, like is kind of a right. You know what I mean? So apparently like on December 10th of 1948, the United States and 47 other nations signed the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The document stated that, quote, Everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of oneself and one's family, including medical care. Then in 2005, the United States and the other member states of the World Health Organization signed the World Health Assembly Resolution. It's like 58.33 because those little numbers mean something as you go through stuff. And that stated that everybody should have access to healthcare services and should not suffer financial hardship when obtaining these services. So it just seems like uh, the original doctrine, however you feel about that, we have made certain addendums. We have looked at things we've realized that should kind of change, right? Like Mm -hmm. we've done this in a lot of ways. And it does kind of seem like the United States on a level does seem to sign things to agree that medical care should be potentially be something that we consider something that you should have a right to have access to and it not mean that you are destitute bankrupt or homeless because you needed medical help right or, like cancer yeah. i'm not talking about a breast augmentation just because you wanted it now a breast augmentation because you have like scoliosis and it's fucking up your back that's a different story but you know because it can't just be like a list of black and white like 
procedures necessarily, right? Because life is too situational. And from what I've even learned of how the Canadian system works, it's not black and white like that either. It's not like we will never cover blank. It does seem to be that there are steps and things that you can take that are almost similar to what you need to do for private health insurance here. Like you can't just go to a specialist, for example, you would still need to go to a general practitioner and then get a referral for that specialist, which can and naturally should take more time than, say, getting cancer treatment because you're found to have, like, some very serious cancer. But we'll, we'll get into kind of the wait times later. But all that to say when it comes to the documents and what you feel that we do in our culture to establish what we consider our rights versus what our laws, it does seem to be that we have signed things that says that we do understand that medical care does make a difference to like how a culture runs and how successful that culture can be. Yeah. If only we had people in power that, you know, actually put things in place to make sure it it, it could happen. I mean, Obamacare was a great first step, but it should not have been the only step. And, you know, even, even with Obamacare, I mean, that was originally a conservative uh, plan anyway, from Mitt Romney of all people. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And even then, like, and I'll, I'll go into that even with this next pro-con, um, campaign promises don't necessarily seem to be what we end up with even when they win because to you don't just win the presidency and then get to do a bunch of stuff. That's not how that works. Like, things still have to pass. And so Obamacare didn't even come close to what the original idea was. And a lot of that does make sense, right? Because you pitch ideas, but then once you go into a room, like if you're going to think about it almost as a business sense, you are going to talk to people like, oh, well, but this will affect this, this, and this. So we can't quite do it that way. You're going to have to do it this way. So in a, in a way, that does make sense, right? Mm-hmm. That just because a campaign promise doesn't mean that that's going to be what you end up with once they come into office, just by the nature of things work. And in a way, I'm super okay with that. Like you should be checking it against everything to make sure it's not going to hurt. But what we seem to deal with now on both sides is almost like a heel digging instead of an actual conversation over what really wouldn't work. Does that make sense? Like there's a difference between having a conversation logically and saying, hey, here's why this wouldn't check out and this doesn't work in your plan versus this doesn't work because it doesn't work. And we've always said that it doesn't work. And uh, yeah. (laughs) Or yeah. Or, um, you know, what you'll commonly see now these days, like the other side uh, proposed this. We're going to say no, no matter what. Are we in all of the meetings where these things are decided and discussed? No. But as far as what people tend to, you know, say on their public platforms, I don't feel that there's like a lot of good reason to not be able to find a middle ground to make certain things work. But anyway, so the next big one that I feel like is another one that's conflicting stats. I love when our pro cons like just directly mesh because it makes me want to read more about them is would the right to health care lower cost of care in the United States or would it just increase the U.S. debt and deficit? So what I kind of found on this one, (coughs) excuse me, guys, still kind of getting over things. According to a study from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, a single-payer system in which all citizens are guaranteed a right to health care, total public and private health care spending could be lowered by up to $1.8 trillion over the next 10 years due to lower administrative and prescription drug costs. According to the data by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, Canada and the United Kingdom 
two countries that provide universal health coverage spend 47% and 42% of what the United States did per capita in 2017. South Korea, also with universal coverage, spent just 28% of what we did. So it's interesting, right? Because those are comparing to countries and areas that have had the single-payer system, which is more like the universal healthcare system that again Mm -hmm. we're not talking about socialized so they've got a single payer type system now on the flip side i when i was kind of reading the the opposing that it's going to cost more money they seem to focus on what's being spent on programs like medicare and medicaid over the years and using these numbers to express that raising these costs would be unsustainable um spending on medicare medicaid and the children's health insurance program these are all government programs that provide a right to health care for certain segments of the population totaled less than 10 percent of the federal budget in 1985 but by 2020 these programs started taking up 21% of the federal budget and are predicted to reach 30% of federal spending by 2028. According to former, former U.S. House Budget Committee Chairman Paul Ryan, government health care programs drive, quote, the explosive growth in our spending and our debt, end quote. <laughs> so I had to throw that in quotes because we do know, I think, uh, there's... <laughs> I think there's things in our budget that have expanded percentage-wise over and over what our health care has increased. But I did want to include that in there that that is one of the arguments that say that this is proof that this would cost us more money. I wanted to cover both as fairly as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a study reference from George Mason University that purportedly concludes that providing government-funded health care to all could increase federal spending by $32.6 trillion over the first 10 years of implementation. However, digging into this, it is specifically talking about Medicare for All program brought up by Sanders during his run. And so this is where I go into campaign promises haven't necessarily been vetted against everything. So I don't know how I feel about comparing things to a what-if proposal. So I, it just gives me pause. Like I think I would have had more respect had they tried to do more of a, hey, if America tried to adopt something like what exists in other countries, like what exists in Canada or in the United Kingdom, um, here's what it would look like and here's how it would increase. They don't seem to be doing that. They seem to be just kind of assuming that what it would look like for us is to suddenly just expand Medicare and Medicaid as is for everybody. And that's the thing that I don't necessarily think is a fair representation of what it would look like to move towards a single payer system. Um, That goes into, it could cause a cultural shift where there is more preventative care. Uh, You also would probably have less restriction when it comes to seeing doctors that you see now when you have a program like Medicare, Medicaid, because no, you don't get to just see everybody. Um, That's not really how that works. So, Yeah, I I still kind of think that I wish somebody would explain why one of the systems that seems to work in other countries wouldn't work here if we could find a way to give a path to it. Does that make sense? Like, I get that it's not as easy as flipping a switch. It would be kind of naive to believe that we could just wake up the next day and everything be like a universal single payer system and that there would be no transition plan. Like, of course there would be a transition plan, but I'm just not seeing the arguments for why we're not transitioning towards it at this point. 
Yeah, I mean, Democrats are morons. I mean, that, that <laughs> that's 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 one thing. I mean, they they have these great proposals, but they don't always come to the fight prepared against uh, the Republican Party. Um, you know, the Paul Ryan's comments, he was uh, Mitt Romney's uh, vice presidential choice in 2012 and was briefly um, the the, major- the leader of uh, the Republicans. Uh, he was a speaker of the House temporarily in the House of Representatives before, um, you know, he took his balls and went home and retired because he didn't want to stand up to Trump. Um, but it is a common refrain from Republicans uh, anytime the budget goes up that it's always social spending that does it it's not the fact that you know our military has you know 10 times uh the amount of resources uh you know devoted to it money money wise compared to like the next 10 countries combined you know no it's 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 always the social programs that that are always doing it and republicans would love to get republican politicians would love a day to when there were no more uh, of these social programs because again they have a very the politicians have a very small group of people that they are actually supporting and that's people with bottom lines yeah and it's just it's interesting to me because it's like instead of asking why are more people applying for these programs it's like there's just an argument of we should get rid of them because they don't work well it's like well but those are still providing care to people who need it so wouldn't it make more sense to look into why are more people needing it versus the energy of trying to get rid of it. But these these are the questions I have at the end of reading stuff like this, right? And, uh, you know, just as much as we'll say that Democrats are ineffective, I'm sure there is on the opposite side that say Republicans are ineffective because they can't get certain things to pass. It goes back into, it's not as simple as you get elected, you say you're going to get something done, you're going to get something done. It has to go through its process. That's why we have a check and balance system. There are parts of our system that I do respect, but when it feels like it's more of a heel digging competition and not like the come together and making decisions together that it was supposed to be, uh, that's where I kind of feel like I'm having a problem with it. You know what I mean? Because you're not going to, even in the business world, if you're going to compare this to any business team meeting, if that is your attitude is heel digging, of course you're not going to come to any conclusions that are actually going to solve a problem. You're just going to both be sitting on the side of your room mad at the other person because how dare they not see your logic and that your way is the way to do it, right? And take a look at um, the Medicare, Medicaid, um, the, the money that's distributed to the states via block grants, and it's up to the state how that money gets, uh, you know, proportioned out to people so they can take advantage of these services. And there are states, uh, you know, in the Midwest and the South and other areas that, you know, don't don't use that money for the betterment of their citizens. And the numbers clearly show that. Yet again, it's people in power don't want this to change, even though I firmly believe that most citizens in this country, conservative, progressive alike, the average citizen would welcome some changes, you know? Exactly. And so like, I think honestly, when it comes to comparing these two, does it lower costs or is it just going to increase the debt and deficit? I'm just more leaning towards the studies that compared it to systems that are working, not studies that are going to pretend that this is what it's going to look like because we're just going to increase this one thing. Because then it goes into, well, are we still going to be spending as much because if people have better access to care 
And that means preventative care that we don't currently have. So really a lot of our costs that are being accrued are from a lack of preventative care and Mm -hmm. a lack of access to accurate preventative care. So that's where I struggle with these, I guess, like just being kind of the the nerding out into clicking and trying to look up (laughs) and see like what people were looking at is I don't understand using yeah, like it, it. Yeah, I already said it. Basically, just comparing it to something that we know is working somewhere makes more sense to look at to me than trying to say, well, this thing that we know is broken is just going to get more broken, or if we make it bigger, and it's like, well, no, duh. Like, yeah. if it's not working now, of course, making the same thing bigger is not going to work better. Um, you would want to replicate something that is working. So I guess that was like my big overall takeaway with this pro con is ultimately for me personally, I just didn't like what they were chasing on the con side of it. I would have had more respect if you could kind of show me why wouldn't it work here? I do understand that just because something works in another culture does not mean it's going to work here. I just don't see the argument at this point. Like I'm just not convinced that it wouldn't based on what's out there right now. Yeah, I mean, because at the end of the day, I mean, are you really seriously going to say, like, England is a third world country, Canada is a third world country? (laughs) I mean, that's how the argument is presented. I mean, if you listen to conservative talk radio and they bring up this topic, they're going to talk about how just how horrendous it is uh, in these countries. No, it's not. And and like you said, you're going to get into that uh, later with one of your points. But it's just, uh, you know, the big problem here is you have a lot of people arguing disingenuously and it clouds the it clouds the whole topic because you got people you got the average citizens that are listening to this and don't always know that they're being let fed a line of bullshit especially if it's all you've ever heard growing up right Mm -hmm. because there is a little bit of you know giving that credit of if if you are in a place it, it goes back to kind of the things i used to believe being raised or I was raised and things that I no longer believe, like once I got out there and kind of met other people and saw other sources of information. Mm-hmm. And so the last argument that I kind of wanted to go into with last pro con is essentially, does it save lives or does it just cost time? And by that, I mean, wait times. So that's kind of that, that tale as old as time thing. I remember hearing is, Oh my gosh, but if you go to another country, you're going to have to wait, wait, and wait. Which, side note, I think the first thing that made me question that was learning that medical tourism was a thing. Because if it's so bad in other places and the wait times are so horrible, then why are some people choosing medical tourism, right? So I kind of remember the first time I challenged that was because of learning about this other thing that's kind of related. But um. According to a study from Harvard, researchers, quote, a lack of health insurance is associated with as many as 44,789 deaths per year, which translates into a 40% increased risk of death among the uninsured. So by not having health insurance, you're 40% more likely. And that does kind of make sense, right? Like, especially if it is still similar where it's hard to see somebody or hard to get in somewhere because you don't have health insurance and you don't have like that for sure way to pay them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a Commonwealth Fund study found that due to a lack of timely and effective care, the United States ranked at the bottom of a list of 16 rich nations in terms of preventable mortality. And a further study published in The Lancet ranked the United States 29 out of 195 countries and territories in terms of preventable mortality. 
In Italy, Spain, France, Australia, Israel, and Norway, all countries with a right to health care, people live up to five years longer than people in the United States. So again, I, I like data that kind of makes it clear like, hey, like I want to look at what's working in other places, right? Because even if you have that, that problem solve mentality takes you to, well, if we know our stuff isn't working great, where is it working? So got to love that about this. <clears throat> On the flip side, <laughs> there was, I thought it was funny that this was like a, and it's a 2012 government accountability office report. Mm-hmm. And it said 9.4% of Medicaid beneficiaries have trouble obtaining necessary care due to long wait times. 9.4% of Medicaid beneficiaries have had trouble obtaining necessary care due to long wait times. I just needed to repeat that because this is wait times is the counter, right? Because are we talking about, are we saving lives or are we losing lives because of wait times is, is the weird kind of equivalency I guess I was getting. So less than 10%. And they compared that to a 4.2% of people with private health insurance, like not having that issue. However, you're kind of comparing apples and oranges in a sense of access to coverage. Um, 10% doesn't seem like a high number to me. And you have to factor in the fact that Medicaid beneficiaries have a restricted pool when compared to private insurance counterparts. I actually found another 2018 article that lays it out. Um, Providers are less likely to accept Medicaid patients than people on other types of health insurance. According to a new Medicaid and Children's Health Insurance Program Payment and Access Commission report. So again, that was back in 2018. And back then they found that only 70% or sorry, 71% of providers even accepted Medicaid. That's compared to 85% who take Medicare and 90% that accept private insurance. I'm not going to claim to be an expert with numbers here, but I feel like that would explain some of that gap between Medicaid, which seems to be the most restrictive, and then they compared it to the most accepted. So again, this is kind of whenever I look at studies and and just things that make me go, "Mm, I wish you had accounted for that better or maybe not done like the spread as far as they did. Right. Because you're comparing wait times with Medicaid when you've got a restricted pool as a Medicaid person. And by the way, this is also talking about gaps between um, seeing a doctor and seeing a specialist. So this isn't saying that you had to wait this whole time to, to see a doctor at all. Like some of these wait times they're talking about was very specifically from you're seeing your doctor and you're trying to see a specialist, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but uh, they also take the age old narrative of, but look at how bad wait times are in Canada. Uh, countries with a universal right to health care have longer wait times than the United States. In the average wait time to see a specialist in Canada was 60 days. But when you look into it, the study is focused on the time between referral and the, con- uh, the consultation with a specialist. So that's you've already seen a doctor. Um, and it's something I'll go into a little bit more into another article that I had found, because this is actually when I stumbled across uh, a really cool one I'll go through at the tail end is I found kind of Canada's healthcare myths busted. And mm-hmm. since we talk about it so much on the anti side of the argument, I did want to find something to kind of stand up to some of those because <clears throat> um, the wait time isn't really super crazy of a concept like it it does actually matter what you're waiting for like i have found nothing that says you're waiting just as long because they suspect you have like an aggressive cancer 
as you are for mm, this bunion on the side of my foot feels kind of bad. Like it, it, there is like that to consider from what I have read of how it works there. So I do think it's interesting that when they're talking about these wait times in this, this is why we shouldn't have this argument. It is lumping in the all of everything and it's taking into averages. And the thing with averages is, is your average person doesn't need a one week turnaround time for an oncologist. Your average person for a specialist needs that orthopedic surgeon to take care of a toe problem, which isn't really that bad. If it means the cancer person can see their person immediately, is it really that big of a social ask for somebody to wait for things that can be waited for? Like, I, I can't help, like, to me, that this is the con that goes next to saving lives, to giving people access to medical care, that the, the big argument against allowing that is that somebody might need to wait for some things. It's this is America. crazy to me. I know, but <laughs> <laughs> to me, I would gladly wait for the person who needs the oncology office, right? Like, I, I get it. Like, not everything about me needs to be the most important. So, uh, and that's me. Uh, and I realize that's not how everybody feels. There's a lot of people that feel like you should be able to put some money on the table and, and get absolutely what you need right now. But at the same time, it's like, has that been the best way to handle the medical situation here, which I guess is really the ultimate argument, is should it really be that you have money, therefore you can get services and have better health? Or should maybe that not be something that is restricted by finance? Uh, well, I mean, you know my answer. I mean, it should yeah, be. Yeah, that's I mean, really a big shocker. Yeah. I don't feel like my mind has been changed. I did find like some of the counter arguments interesting about this. Um, I did think it was kind of funny. Like one of the cons that came up gave me a total like reefer madness feel like the socialism madness kind of the scariness of it mm -hmm. um <laughs> this con argument i feel like i've heard a lot but i still don't quite understand how it's held for this long um just the implementing a right to health care could lead the united states towards socialism <laughs> socialism by definition entails government control of the distribution of goods and services this argument claims that under a single payer system where everybody has the right to health care and all health care bills are paid by the government, that the government can control the distribution of health care services. According to Ronald Reagan, quote, <laughs> one of the traditional methods of imposing imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. And once socialized medicine is instituted, quote, behind it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom. Um, essentially, the feeling is that the free market should determine the availability of cost of healthcare services, not the federal government. I find this particularly frustrating because it's caused even some removal of services that used to be public. Like that, it kind of put this hunt to take things that were services that we hadn't taken them away. And by that, I'm mostly specifically talking about ambulance services. That used to be something that was more of an offset of like the fire. Uh, firefighters, right? They were more just paramedically trained. They're, they're reacting to an emergency, right? It's kind of like 
police. I mean, it's not everybody's favorite thing right now, but that is still a social thing that we have. So is the fire department. So our public libraries, like we do have social systems in here. So to me, it's like, I think my biggest thing with the, the socialism madness thing is the taking away things that there may have not been a reason to take it away. Um, that was something that I did kind of remember hearing about as a kid, the ambulance thing specifically, like that this is now something that's going to be a service. It is kind of funny because uh, I kind of remember some people thinking it was going to make ambulance services better for some reason. And now it's actually kind of complicated things further because I, through this, found some other articles, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, an article specifically from Washington.edu that uh, kind of talks about some of the surprise costs, the sticker shock that's happening. You know, for example, there's an article that I've included that will probably go ahead and pop up in there that talks specifically about somebody's bill that they got hit with because the ambulance company wasn't contracted with the insurance. Now, they weren't in the state of mind to call and check that beforehand like you would for, say, a specialist or something, you know, that you would need to go through certain things to go through and figure out if they're a network. Somebody would say that if you're calling an ambulance, that you're not at a point where you can vet and make sure it's in network. So it does kind of seem to be complicating the medical debt situation that was already not great. Mm -hmm. Um but the article from edu was the one that uh, washington.edu was the one that pointed out that there's actually been little research done linking medical debt to homelessness. Um, I'm going to try to say their last name. Bylenberg uh, was the one that kind of like headed this article. And while her study did not find a direct causal relationship between the two going becoming homeless and medical debt, it did determine that among those experiencing homelessness, the inability to pay off medical bills, even a few hundred dollars was associated with considerably more time spent unhoused. So these things kind of seem to feed into each other in that sense. And I guess that's where it's like I get frustrated that, that there's not more conversation on how to fix it. Um, because it seems to be that there's a fair argument that our medical debt is not just causing a certain number of bankruptcies. It's causing a certain number of like our homeless demographic, which is then in turn going to cost more in medical expenses. Because if somebody that is homeless, houseless, doesn't have any money to pay like an emergency type service, like say if somebody called 911 and they were on a bench and they get taken in somebody's going to pay that and big spoiler alert, that's some of the stuff that gets taken out of taxes. So that's some of the interesting conversation um, that is to be had is would this actually cost us more money or would it actually end up saving us more money because we don't have kind of this double pay where we're paying taxes to support situations like that, but then we're also having to pay high premiums, monthly, you know, costs more than your car payment sometimes to even have health insurance deducted from your your work, like if they do offer it. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot to talk about, I think, on the, on the topic in general. So uh, there's plenty there. Uh, I know we are going to include the link. There are several more pros and cons that go into the taxes and stuff. But I did know that some of that was going to be covered by the next article that I wanted to share with you guys that I came across. Yeah. And, and, and like th this example that you brought up here is a clear, a clear example for me of why 
not everything should be open to the free market. What do I mean by that? You know, a place like Amazon that, you know, sells books, that sells all kinds of other stuff. They're a private company, you know? So if like the government tried to, you know, say Amazon is now a government run company, that would be socialism. That would be wrong. But, you know, you've already brought up the example, the police, the police are a social construct that we have in place. You know, I mean, you don't want a private run police force, you know, and it's it when you have these services that benefit everybody like the police, like the fire department, like the post office, you know, how you can, how anybody can say with, with a straight face that medicine doesn't belong in that conversation is beyond me. And, and it, it, it shows the disingenuousness too of the conservative argument here because the conservatives have been the one that have been hammering that government should not be involved in stuff. It should be left up to private business and look, look at what's happening with the post office. You know, I mean, you know, they've they have the public, the Republicans had had their fun with the post office and a lot of services are now being taken out services that people depended upon, you know, and and not everything should be privatized. Now, having said that, you know, there the country that we are in, if there are people that do have the means and they want to go their own doctors, fine. I'm glad that there is stuff, stuff for that. I'm not saying that should be taken away, but there needs to be a base level of support because again, like the police, like education, like the, uh, the other things that I mentioned, this benefits us all. And it, and, and just, we have plenty of examples showing what happens when we don't, you know, put put our time and effort into fixing this problem. Right. Because, yeah, that's another one. Public school. Public school is a totally social system. But, you know, we don't ask how the teachers get paid. But because that's another interesting con argument that came up with like something with the doctors. But that was where I started going into a lot of the the pro cons seem to be a little bit more Canada focused. So I did actually find this is from 2008, 10 myths about Canadian healthcare busted. And so I figured this really kind of covered a lot of the other things. I'm going to throw it out there. I will still put the caveat that uh, just because it works somewhere else doesn't necessarily mean it would work here. However, I do kind of take this as reasons of maybe we could consider, you know, trying to fold some of these things into the solution of what seems to be a problem that we know we have that we haven't seemed to get anywhere with fixing because it just seems like people are stuck on their sides. It goes back into, I'm not going to pretend to be in the room with every political conversation where they're on each side of the room with their arms folded. I don't know if that's exactly how it's happening, but when you listen to kind of the talking points as people say, vote for me, it does kind of have that air of unwillingness to work with the other side. So that's where I am saying that I pick that up. But on the other side, we have heard a lot of, oh, look at the hellscape that is Canada's healthcare. So I wanted to find an article where it stood up for that a little bit. So number one myth, Canada's healthcare system is, quote, socialized medicine. Um, that came up as false. In socialized medical systems, the doctors work directly for the state. In Canada and many other countries with universal care, doctors run their own private practices just like they do in the United States. The only difference is that every doctor deals with one insurer instead of $150 or 150 insurers. And that insurer is the 
as the government, basically, um, which is accountable to the legislature and the voters if the quality of coverage is allowed to slide. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That goes into some of the stuff that one of the pro articles mentioned. It did say something about saving in admin costs. And that's what it's talking about is when you think about it, it makes sense, right? If you have a medical billing person, you have maybe one person in an office in Canada because they're only really dealing with one payer. But in America, oh my gosh, you would never have a practice with like one person unless you just had a few doctors because mm-hmm. I've done that. I've done that job. Um, I worked in the ambulance and I worked for a psychology clinic in a little bit of that role. And my goodness, like the, the steps that you have to take as an admin if we had had just one more doctor at that clinic, I mean, we did need a second person because that's what I helped with. But it just doesn't work the same in Canada. There's, there, it's actually a lot smaller. They might have one person, and I remembered reading somewhere, and that person is probably just ready to kind of help you. It's a lot more friendly. You know, they're not having to do as many things in the background because it's just inherently less complicated. So I thought it was kind of interesting to kind of read about that a little bit. Um, number two, doctors are hurt financially by single-payer health care. And they put this one as a true and false, which side note, that was something I did kind of respect about this article. While it is written by a group that is very pro-universal health care, so you do have to take it with a grain of that, I felt that they were kind of honest in the true falsiness of things. So they said it's true and false. Doctors in Canada do make less than their U.S. counterparts, but they also have lower overhead and usually do much better and have much better working conditions. So this is where they kind of went into, if you read the article some of those interesting effects is you just don't need as busy of an office because it's just inherently less complicated to do the admin side of things. Um, Number three, one of our favorites, wait times in Canada are horrendous. And they gave this a true and false again. It depends on which province you live in and what's wrong with you. Canada's healthcare system runs on federal guidelines that in, that ensure uniform standards of care, but each territory and province administers its own program. Some provinces don't plan their facilities well enough, and those you can have waits. Some do better. As a general rule, the farther north you live, the harder it is to get care simply because the doctors and hospitals are concentrated in the south. But that's just as true in any rural country or county in the United States. So I did think it was kind of cool that they kind of really just put it out there that it's not so different than what you would experience anyway, right? Like, and it makes sense. If you live in a smaller town, you don't have as much access to care. You're going to be more likely to have to drive into the city. When I lived in small town, Texas, a lot of the specialists, you had to go to Dallas and that was a 45 minute drive. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I definitely remember that existing um, in my experience, even as a kid. But uh, as far as like the wait times, it goes back into that other study that I referenced that they're talking about from general practitioner to specialist. And they even said it in that little summary. It does matter what's wrong with you. It's not as cold as, nope, you came in on this date, so you're going to have to wait for the specialist X number of days because that's what's fair. Everybody does it. And that's what I feel like it's been pitched as. 
not at all how it seems to work. And a lot of that lines up to the conversations because this was the one specifically that I little Americanized put my foot in my mouth when I was talking to like a little group of people in a chat room like back in the day (laughs) that I found out they were all Canadian and we were just kind of busting and kind of having some jokes. And I had made the joke about wait times for some reason. And that's when I got told that's not how that works. (laughs) Yeah, Um, you you said it and you were like, I'm going to get one over on them. And then you got put in your place. (laughs) Yeah, because I forget what theirs was. It was something silly. I was like, oh, yeah well at least I could see a doctor within a month and they're like what are you talking about like they didn't even know what I was talking about that's how poorly that joke landed (laughs) (laughs) but uh, the other one that's kind of related to this is the idea that you have to wait forever for a family doctor so I love that they kind of did the one thing that I didn't feel the other studies did they did look at the difference of wait times for specialist versus seeing your general family doctor. And they said that that's false for a vast majority of Canadians, but true for a few. Again, it all depends on where you live. Mm-hmm. Same thing. I uh, The person who wrote this uh, lives in the suburban Vancouver area, and there are any number of first-rate GPs in the neighborhood who are taking new patients. But if you don't have a working relationship with one and need to see a doctor now, there are 24-hour urgent care clinics in most neighborhoods that will usually get you in and out for the minor stuff in under an hour. So it goes back to where are you? Are you in little podunk like Texas, like I was where you might need to venture out to find a general care practitioner. It's the same thing there. Um, So I thought it was kind of cool that they just kind of busted that down of it's really not that different guys. All right. Myth number five, you don't get to choose your own doctor. Amazingly false. Um, this is, <laughs> I think it was kind of funny. Uh, they just like, like, no, this is, this is very wrong. They actually chose to kind of put it funny. Um, somebody somewhere is getting paid a lot of money to make this kind of stuff up. Uh, the cons love to scare the kids with stories about the government picking your doctor for you and you don't get a choice. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> Um, For the record, Canadians pick their own doctors just like Americans do. And not only that, since it all pays the same, poor Canadians have exactly the same access to the country's top specialists that the rich ones do. Again, if it's a specialist that is of urgent need, you get in the time like there's no amount of money that makes it happen faster. Um, So that's kind of how that rolls there. Uh, Number six, Canada. Canada's care plan only covers the basics. You're still on your own for extras, including prescription drugs, and you still have to pay for it. That turned out to be true, but not as big as an issue as you might think. Uh, The province does charge a small monthly premium. The time when they wrote this was $108 per month for the entire family of four for the basic coverage. However, most people never even have to write that check. Almost all employers pick up the tab for their employees' premiums as part of the standard benefits package, and the province covers it for the people on public assistance or disabilities. And they're talking about the basics covers uh, 100% of doctor's fees, ambulance fares, tests, and everything that happens in the hospital. In other words, the really big-ticket items that routinely drive American families into bankruptcy... (laughs) So, and again, this was written in 2008, and they are very much, um, you know, the people who put this together are very pro. So they are kind of making those digs. But it is fair because it goes back to before even opening this article. I feel like you and I were both very aware of a narrative that a lot of bankruptcy 
is caused by medical debt. And it turns out there could use to be some speculation to figuring out how much of that is contributing to homelessness, especially since that's gone up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would dare say it's gone up maybe more since the ambulance companies started charging because being on the medical billing side of that, those are not cheap. Those are $1,000, $2,000 rides. And if you don't have insurance, that goes right back down to you. So it does, you know, kind of make sense. Uh, so number seven, we're almost done with this list. Canadian drugs are not the same. Uh, <laughs> They're all made of maple syrup, you know. Here's your right? bats, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is another one that they just kind of more or less laughed off in the article. Um, They are exactly the same drugs made by the same pharmaceutical companies, often in the same factories. Uh, The Canadian drug distribution system, however, has much tighter oversight and pharmacies and pharmacists are more closely regulated. If there is a difference in Canadian drugs at all, they're actually likely to be safer. Also, pharmacists here dispense what the doctors tell them to dispense the first time without moralizing. I know, it's amazing. (laughs) I know, I did enjoy this article for the zings. Um, Publicly funded programs will inevitably lead to rationed health care, particularly for the elderly. This, they said, is false. Again, mind-bogglingly so. The papers would have a field day if there was the barest hint that this might be true. Um, Yeah, one of the things that they said that constantly amazes them there is how well cared for the elderly are. And something that came up in the pros and cons article from Britannica is something that kind of acts as a watchdog for them is their local news. They, they talk a lot about like how the healthcare systems are doing because their public is vested in how well it's doing. So if there is hijinks and it ends up on the news, there tends to be a lot of backlash for it because again, the whole culture understands that they have invested in this system being good. So it, it's, it's, funny to me that's like yeah like a lot of this stuff seems made up because if there was like bad care it would be all over the news and because it is a public system that acts like as a watchdog uh, so anywho I, I did kind of think it's funny that it does seem like a lot of it was taken more seriously uh, like some of the topics are taken more seriously but some of them just kind of seem to be laughed off as like I don't understand how anybody made this up um, last two and then we'll be done with with the checklist uh People won't be responsible for their own health if they're not being forced to pay for the consequences. Uh, it was an interesting one. And I think you can really kind of see that this is some of the stuff that may be more of that super far right talking. You know what I mean? It's kind of like the same people who believe that people aren't working just because they're lazy and don't want to. And yeah. not because they're being basically forced to choose between unemployment paying more than the jobs that they can get. Um Right. Because I I mean, I'm sure that there is a part of that demographic that is the I'm going to play my video games all day. I just don't think that's most of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Just the the numbers aren't out there to prove that. So it does kind of seem to be that number nine, the the whole like you need to be forced into being responsible concept kind of really goes from that far end. But anywho. Ahead, it sorry. reeks. Yeah, sorry about that. It reeks of the prosperity gospel nonsense. You know that whole thing of like, if you're good with God, you're magically going to be rewarded with riches, and it it just it just reeks of that. Like, you know, somehow you're not a good human being because you don't make enough to pay for your cancer treatment. Come on, 
Yeah, (laughs) so their response to this is false. The philosophical basis of America's privatized healthcare system might best be characterized as medical Calvinism. It's fascinating to watch well-educated secularists who recoil at the Protestant obsession with personal virtue, prosperity as a cardinal sign of election by God, and total responsibility for one's own salvation turn into fire-eyed, moralizing true believers when it comes to the subject of taking responsibility for one's own health. And I think like the interesting thing is the taking responsibility for your consequences is also kind of that uh, that weird thing that I've heard before on, you know, why abortion should be illegal is this concept that and somebody said this to me recently is that they feel that people should be responsible for it. Like this, this idea that you need to pay for negative consequences here is kind of stunning to me. But it was interesting because I didn't really ever feel like I had heard this so bluntly applied to like the medical stuff, but it does kind of make sense that that would have been pulled from some talking point, but it goes back to, I don't tend to listen to the far right. So I, I hadn't heard this before, but it does sound very familiar to things like with the abortion conversation, uh, even with student loan forgiveness, they say that you should have to feel it because otherwise like you're not understanding what you were given or something. So I don't know. To me, it's kind of interesting that that mentality showed up here because I don't really remember hearing that one out of all of these 10. And then the last one, this all sounds great, but the taxes to cover it are just unaffordable. And besides, it isn't the system in financial bad, isn't the good, wow, let me try that again. Isn't the system in bad financial shape? Like kind of this implication that they're in bad shape financially because of the taxes being unaffordable. And they said false. On one hand, our annual Canadian tax bite runs about 10% higher than our U.S. taxes did. On the other, we are not paying out the equivalent of two new car payments every month to keep the family insured here. When you balance out the difference, we're actually money ahead. When you factor in the greatly increased social stability that follows when everybody's getting their necessary health care met, the impact on our quality of life becomes even more significant. So... uh, I liked the myths being busted. I felt like it kind of covered a lot of what I'd heard. And like I said, one that I don't feel like I've ever heard, but I can kind of understand if that came out as a talking point at some point, and I just wasn't aware of it. But um, yeah, kind of refreshing, because there's even some stuff that even I may have thought, you know, initially, I, I guess I could have seen it taking a while to get a family practitioner. But I guess like the way it got laid out, it does make sense to me that it might be just about the same amount of time. Yeah. And, you know, I guess, too, it also shows that, uh, you know, finding the right place to live is just as much a a factor in this as, uh, you know, the quality of the doctors themselves, you know. So um, I guess live in the city, folks. (laughs) Well, I mean, it does make sense, right? Like if you know that you've got something that runs in your family or you know that you deal with something and you need to be near a specialist, like you would make decisions like that just as you would if you were planning on having children and you know you wanted to go into public schooling with them, that you would hopefully be picky about what neighborhood you live in based on what public schooling is available. And those are the decisions that you make at that point, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem like that those the being able to see a specialist, the being able to get a doctor would be as much of a difference as it was pitched to be. It just seems like it would be some interesting administrative background stuff. 
But um, yeah, it just kind of goes into, I wish there was more of like uh, the Bruce Lee mentality of it, right? The, um, the absorb what is useful, discard what is not, and add is what add in what is uniquely your own, right? Like we don't have to necessarily completely copy what somebody's doing to go over there, look and see that there's some stuff that maybe we could start to phase in over here that could help us as a society. Because here's the deal. It's going into the mental healthness of it all, right? I don't think it is the sign of a mentally well person to seriously want to sit and not work all day. And not want to do something like we actually do have animal drives in that sense. Like we should want to contribute to our our society in a sense. Like in a dumb way, I feel mentally better now that I work at a bagel shop because in a dumb way, I, I give. I give people their breakfast on the way to their work for the thing that they do. Like maybe they're an analyst for the city and they're helping figure out what potholes need to be fixed, right? Like you should want to kind of contribute. I do believe that that should be in most people. And if it's not, then maybe that's the sign of something is wrong. Uh And is that that you are in some kind of physical or mental pain that prevents you from working? Well, it sure would be nice if you could get help for that. And then maybe you can go and be like functioning and contributing in your culture because you're actually feeling up to it. So I don't know. I think it's definitely worth looking into because they seem to all be interrelated to a lot of problems we're having in our culture. And it's just a conversation I wish I could see more people having to you know, not necessarily with the goal of disproving you, but rather having a conversation of, hey, here's what I looked at that I believe would work. What have you looked at that you would believe would work? And let's have a discourse, like how a discussion used to go. Some might say an argument, not a fight, because there is a difference. And it just seems like we're more geared towards fighting than arguing or discussing at this point. It's frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need politicians on both sides of the aisle that are focused on helping the citizens. You know, it's and and not thinking of legislative battles like sporting events. You know, if Republicans pass a law that benefits society, that law should be supported and praised. Same with Democrats. It's it's not a competition. This is this is a tribalism at work here. Um, this whole this whole battle of you know we must get these wins when when I, I remember the 2012 uh, Republican um, Republican uh, the presidential debates, and I remember there was like one where they asked the the people on stage about compromise, and with without a a, a pause, each and every one of them talked about compromise. Compromises if it was like a dirty, dirty word. And when it comes to uh, like stuff like our healthcare system, like, come on, there has to get to the table, talk it out and come to a solution that's going to benefit people. Because, again, politics is not a sporting event. It's not. Right. Private citizen to politicians. If I could just sit them all down for a second. It's like this is what I find frustrating. Right. Because we know it's a problem. And we know that there are potential solutions out there to help us with this problem that we are having as a society. But it's like we're – there's no progress. And so like as a private citizen, I just want to ask like, hey, politicians, like there seems to be stuff out there. Can we look at it honestly and and see what can maybe work and help? Because maybe you don't care about the people that end up working 
at, at the lowest of the chains, right? Like, the, let's just say like the McDonald's worker, right? I don't know. I want a healthy McDonald's worker, and we should want a healthy McDonald's <laughs> worker, right? Like, I I don't think that job should be miserable and horrible, but at the same time, like, it also shouldn't be filled by somebody who's maybe not the healthiest and that goes into you're just more likely to get sick to then give to somebody else you're also more likely to just not be doing your job as well right because if you're not feeling well you're just less likely to produce a quality product and that's just talking about you know somebody working at mcdonald's there's any number of jobs out there right that we would want people operating at their best and it seems to be that because physical health ties in so much to mental health that it seems natural that our society would do really, really well if more people had access to preventative health care. It would do really, really well if we could change this attitude of avoiding doctors like the plague and see them as what they could be, which could be kind of the equivalent of a geek squad person. Like you're just going in and having a conversation with somebody who is the professional in this, and then you get to kind of really make a lot of decisions after that. Like a doctor can't make you take the pills that they say that maybe you should take for your blood pressure, but they Uh can recommend them. Like even in Canada, like sure, they might say like, yes, you should take this or you need to do this. But ultimately last I checked, they're not like following them with like (laughs) some sort of like a threat of imprisonment if they don't take it. You know what I mean? So it's just interesting. Like a lot of the arguments against it haven't made sense. I guess at the end of the day, they still don't make sense. There's stuff that I would respect more if they could show me why things that work in other countries wouldn't work here. I think I would be a little bit more open to being like, oh, okay, this seems a little bit more middle ground then. But it just seems like this would be a really good step for our country. And it's really more of a heel digging mentality that's stopping it from being able to move forward. Uh, yeah, and it's sad because I think a majority of Americans would welcome positive changes to the healthcare system that you know makes it easier for them to get the help that they need when when uh, they need it. You know, um, and another thing too. I mean, and, and we don't got the time to really dive into this too. It's just, but um, you know, think about the racial aspect of this too. I mean, there you know the people that are going to be the hardest hit in this country are going to sadly be minorities and you know minorities and women you know most especially you know and they're not you know that we have um a certain political party in this country that has made it clear that they don't care about you know helping everybody out you know um again we're talking about the political party not people that may still support that want to make it clear but you know at the end of the day, we got to vote the right people into office. That 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 just goes without saying. I mean, because if if we have any hope of this being changed, we have to get people in Congress on the Republican and Democrat side that want to treat this seriously. You know, we don't yeah. have that. We no, I don't feel like we do either. But yeah, I guess at the end of the day, I, I mean, I didn't go into researching this thinking I was going to change my mind. Um, I did go in learning. You know, words have meanings. That there's a difference between socialized medicine and universal healthcare, aka a single payer system. That Canada does not have the socialized system. They have a single payer system. You know, much like, I guess, I think I saw somewhere where it was compared to Medicare for all. But again, that's nothing that ever actually passed or got put anywhere. That was campaign promise speculation stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I... 
I did learn some stuff. There's just some things that I wish that we could look at. And I think that's an okay place to be on this one. I, I, I like that I learned things. I did kind of learn something really quirky, by the way. Um, in reading all of this, I guess the person who's considered the father of of Canada's uh, healthcare system is Tommy Douglas, who happens to be Kiefer Sutherland's grandfather. Mm-hmm. So you're welcome. You guys now know that dumb piece of trivia. That will probably never be important for you, but I thought it was the <laughs> funniest thing to get mentioned in all of the things that I was reading. <laughs> I actually uh, knew that um, only because I was—I've uh, been a huge Kiefer Sutherland fan and love Twenty Four. Um, you know, he's brought that up in interviews a couple of times. Um, but yeah, just uh, get out and vote, people. I mean, d- vote for people that are looking to honestly help you know, the average citizens out there, you know, it's, it's not a Republican thing. It's not a Democrat thing. We need people in office that actually want to work towards helping people. And, you know, I, I think that's going to be one of the ways that we can, we can, you know, make some change here, hopefully across the years. Maybe consider that it might be worth it to vote for people who support this idea over voting for somebody just because what color lapel pen they wear. And that's the thing that I've always tried to be open to is that I want to focus more when I vote on what issues I really feel are affecting a lot of us. And I think it's a really fair argument that our healthcare system is kind of a big contributor, not just to the mental health stuff, but also the physical health, which does play into the mental health. So they're interconnected. Mm -hmm. And then it also seems to play into the problem we have with people who are in poverty, who are bankrupt, who are homeless, seems to also be tied into this. So it does kind of seem like something that we should care about getting fixed because of how many things it seems to affect. Like there's people who can't buy a home because of their medical debt. Just like the same thing is there's people who can't buy a home because of student loan debt. Granted, when you look at the grand scheme of things, I'm not sure I can prioritize student loan debt if this is on the table, does that make sense to anybody out there? So I guess I'm saying, dear Republicans, <laughs> if you'd like me to consider voting for you, this is a very tasty morsel that would honestly take me away from student loan debt, even though student loan debt does affect me personally a little bit more. However, who's to say this won't affect me more personally later? So it does kind of affect more people. It does seem to be like something that needs to be addressed. And it's just something that I wish was being talked about more now. And I guess it kind of is. Um, I'm, I'd be, I'm curious how much this is going to come up as we get closer to what is going to be more election cycles, because this is something that I'm definitely caring about. And I guess my big pitch is I hope more people care about this, too. I hope so, um, because Republicans, I mean, remember when uh, during the Trump administration and Republicans had control of Congress, they tried many times to kill Obamacare and, you know, just barely were barely were on, were not able to do it, but just barely. And who knows? Um, you know, they're they've already gone after they're already going after Roe versus Wade. Um, that's something in the abortion uh, uh, debate that uh, has came out after the episode we did on this and you know who knows what they'll come for if they get back into into control you know so 
we got a scary, scary year ahead of us. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess Dr. Oz decided to stop pretending to be a doctor and started to start pretending being a politician. I, that totally – I texted you. You were the first person I texted when I learned that Dr. Oz is trying to get into the Senate. Uh. <laughs> being supported by Trump. I mean, and, uh. and like – like both of uh, Oprah's picks there, like Dr. Phil didn't run for Congress, but like during the start of the pandemic was saying some of the ridiculous stuff about, you know, we should go back to work and, and all that. And then Dr. Oz, of course, being a big Trump fan out of nowhere, even though it's been clear that Dr. Oz has been like a snake oil uh, salesman, essentially, oh, um, yeah. because of this ridiculous show. Well, he and the big O got in trouble for the uh, Cyberry stuff. Like there, I think there was actually a lawsuit about that. So, uh, yeah. and I, I actually, I kind of remember some of the Cyberry. But, uh, <laughs> but anywho, I guess that kind of really wraps us up on the conversation today. There is so much more to talk about there out there. Like, talk with your friends, have conversations about this. I think we can all learn how to have conversations together. That's not about necessarily like imposing your beliefs on somebody and is just about talking something out. And most importantly, do the research. I mean, the research you did this week, you found some great articles and I, I did love the, the list from Canada too, because as you pointed out, it wasn't just, we have it great here. They were honest about some of the bad stuff that, that occurs in that particular system as well. And that's how you are able to properly um, one, get the knowledge, but two, when you're talking to somebody else about it, you have a fuller picture. That's brilliant. Oh, yes. And so that's, again, why I wanted to put that out there is these are things that I feel like we hear enough in our culture in America that says, well, this is why this is a poo-poo idea. <laughs> well, now you've got a little bit of an arsenal that you can come back with, some vetted knowledge. And, uh, yeah, like we can kind of maybe bust some of that. Maybe if we talk about it a little bit more, it'll it'll be one of those things that will make it harder for me to pick who to vote for. Because, man, I do like it when it's hard for me to pick who to vote for because – I'm just one of those people. I will try to pick the person who supports the thing that will help a culture over just me. And yep. everybody votes differently. And I'm not saying you need to think that way, but me, that's how I am. And this is so obviously something that's worth addressing, but I, I hope it comes up this election cycle. I hope so too. And again, all I say to people out there is just consider who you are voting for. It's not a, it's not an issue of vote for one side only vote for the best people that are going to make a true change in this country for the positive. They are out there. We just have to support them. We yes. Do. And just because something doesn't directly support you, right? Like for example, yeah, it would be great if my student loan debt was like just all gone. But I also think it would be great for me and the societal benefit that I would then feel if this happened as well. So you can think of things that way. Like maybe you do have like really great insurance for whatever reason and it's just something that's not really a priority for you personally. It can still help a lot of things. Like it can help society as a whole. <laughs> Indeed. And that's that's the important thing here. That's why we wanted to bring it up. So thank you once again for another week of marvelous research. Oh, you're very welcome. I did enjoy this one. Indeed. And we thank you all for listening to another episode of Friends Talking Nerdy. Remember to check out the other shows on the Friends Talking Nerdy podcast network. Each Saturday, we'll have something in this podcast space to entertain your ear holes. Until we meet again, we bid you adieu. I might have super immunity. Yay! 
Subscribe to Friendstalking Nerdy on iTunes, the Google Play Music Store, as well as Spotify. Remember to support Friendstalking Nerdy on Patreon. Goodbye, darling.